we are uh, getting down to the getting down here. I know it has been a long, hard downhill slide. Uh, just it has just gotten harder and harder and harder um, as we get closer and closer to the fall of Jerusalem. The Lord is bringing in bigger and bigger and more important prophets. We've 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 got Isaiah, Jeremiah. We're hitting Ezekiel today. Um, the, the Lord is just doing absolutely everything, and and the Israelites are doing everything they can to reject the Lord. It is horrible. The good news that I want to give you is not next week, but the week after we hit the fall of Jerusalem. And after that, everything lightens up. It's all better. Um, Things, you know, we get to the fall of Jerusalem and then we go up from there and um, the rest will be the rest of what's left of the Hebrew Bible, which isn't really all that much, um, what's left is much, much uh, lighter, and there's no more of this horrible destruction and chaos that we're going through right now. So hang in there, folks. It Just to remind you where we are um, in the cycle, though, it's been about five years since King Jehoiakim was carried off to Babylon by Nebuchadnezzar back in the second big wave of exiles. Zedekiah, his uncle, is now puppet king in Judah. It's July 31st, 593 BCE. We have an actual day. And a young priest living in exile in Babylon has a vision of the heavens opening. This young man is named Ezekiel. Little does he know that this first vision, which is a doozy, is just one of many to come. And little does he know that his visions will fundamentally shift Jewish and Christian understanding of the end times and beyond. Ezekiel is with the enslaved exiles near the Kabar River, somewhere near the city of Babylon. He's over in Babylon somewhere. Now, Ezekiel looks like an old man in these pictures, and I guess five years of slavery would make anyone look old, but he was actually only 25 years old when he was taken captive, and so he's now only 30 years old. So despite what he looks like in these pictures, he is a young man, and suddenly he sees a windstorm coming from the north. It is a huge storm, a big cloud framed by light with lightning flashing inside of it. And in the very center of the storm, there is a bright fire like molten metal. And here's what he says he sees. Inside that brilliant molten fire, I see four human-like figures, but they each have four faces and four wings. They seem to be sort of four-sided with one face of a human, one face of a lion, one face of a bull, and one face of an eagle. Their legs are straight like humans, but end in hooves like calves, hooves that are as bright as polished bronze. And they have human hands beneath their wings on all four sides. With two of their wings, they they cover their bodies. And with two of their wings, they join to each other. And wherever the spirit moves, these four living creatures move with it. But they never seem to have to turn for they can move in any direction in a straight line. And oh, how they look. They are on fire and the fire passes between them and among them. And the fire has a sort of radiance, a a fierce glow to it. And lightning comes from the fire and sparks fly as the creatures move. And they move so fast, I can hardly keep up with watching them. And look, there's a there's a wheel or a set of wheels, one within another on the ground by each creature. And the wheels look like they're made of chrysolite, bright as flashing emeralds. All the wheels are alike. 
and they too can move easily in any direction without turning. And the rims of the wheels are so high and awesome, and they are utterly filled with eyes. Whenever the creatures move, the wheels go with them, even if the creatures lift up off the ground. The creatures go wherever the spirit goes, and the wheels go as well, for the life essence of each creature is in its wheels. And over the creatures is a sort of supporting sky, a vault, a platform, looking like it's made of fearsome ice. The sound of the wings of the creature sounds like rushing waters. It is the sound of Shaddai. What an uproar there is when the creatures move, like the sound of an army. But when they stand still, their wings relax. The area above that platform or vault or whatever over their heads looks like a sapphire and a sort of throne. And above that is a humanish sort of shape. But what a shape like amber embedded in fire, radiating everywhere, radiance, like, like that of a huge rainbow, radiance that is the glory of the Lord. Realizing he's seeing the glory of God in the very throne room of God, Ezekiel falls face down on the ground, and a voice speaks to him, saying, man, Stand up so I may speak with you. And as God speaks, Ezekiel is enabled to stand. And God says, man, I am sending you to the brazen, hard-hearted children of mine. Even though they insist on rebelling against me, they will never be able to deny that my prophet has been among them. Do not fear them or their words. Even if they rebel, you still speak my words to them. Now open your mouth and eat what I give you. And suddenly Ezekiel sees a scroll with words of funeral songs and mourning and bitter sorrow written all over it. Ezekiel opens his mouth and God feeds him the scroll and says, I am filling your belly with this scroll. And despite the terrible words on it, the scroll is sweet as honey in Ezekiel's mouth. And God says, speak my words to my people. They are stubborn and hard-hearted, but I have made your face as hard as diamond. Take all my words into your heart. Listen to me with your ears, and go to your people and speak. And with that, a wind lifts Ezekiel up, and he hears a great roar saying, Blessed be the Lord's glory. And he hears the sounds of the creature's wings and their wheels. And in his spirit, Ezekiel feels bitterness and anger, for the hand of the Lord is strongly upon him. And then, as suddenly as it began, the vision is over. And Ezekiel is once again sitting beside the Kabar River among the exiles. No doubt he's trying to absorb all he has seen and heard and swallowed. No doubt he's comparing his vision of the actual living, fearsome Caribbean hovering at the throne of God with their wings and their fire to the sadly pale version carved in wood and gold that used to sit in the Holy of Holies. How much God humbled himself to come to this small mercy seat to dwell among his people when the reality is so much greater and fearsome. Ezekiel is completely overwhelmed. He sits there seven days until finally the word of the Lord comes to him again. This time, the Lord says, man, 
I made you a watchman, a lookout for the house of Israel. When I speak to you, you must speak to them immediately or the consequences will fall upon you yourself. Get up and go to them. The Lord says, son of man. Notice that that's a new title. We haven't run across it before. This is a title Jesus also uses for himself later. Son of man, the Lord says, go get a slab of clay and set it up in front of you. Then inscribe the city of Jerusalem on it. You can imagine the attention Ezekiel has drawn at this point. I mean, who does this in a slave camp? I I don't even know if model building was even a hobby back then. Next, the Lord says, lay siege to the city, build ramps, set up little army camps, make little battering rams and put them all around it. Oh, and oh yeah, uh, go get an iron skillet and put it between you and the city and sit there and stare at it. That will be you besieging Jerusalem. If this wasn't so serious, this would crack me up. The Lord is literally playing army men in an effort to get the people to understand the danger they are in. The Lord is acting it out for them. The people are supposed to see all this as a sign. Somehow, I don't think they do. I don't know about you, but it seems like being a prophet for the Lord is a long, weird, lonely road. Poor Ezekiel. Next, the Lord says, lie down on your left side for 390 days. Take on yourself the sin of the people of Israel, one day for every year of their sin. Now, the Lord is specifically talking about the people of the northern kingdom of Israel here. And they, of course, are already in exile, scattered across the nations. I'm not sure exactly how Ezekiel takes on the people's sin. I guess the Lord lays it on him, much like we see the laying of the sins of the people on the scapegoat every year at Yom Kippur, right? And it has echoes of Jesus, right? And apparently the weight is going to be too much for Ezekiel to bear standing or sitting. So he has to lay down. It's a very weird story. And I'm giving it to you as it is in the Bible. I'm not making judgments as to how literally to take it. That is entirely up to you. But I did do some math to figure out what was going on in Israel 390 years ago. Ezekiel gave us the date of his vision is 593 BCE, or at least that was when his, that original call vision was um, uh, with all the rainbows and the throne room of God and everything. And this, this little episode is immediately after that. So going back 390 years from Ezekiel's call in 593 takes us to the last 10 years of King David's reign. The northern kingdom of Israel didn't actually exist separately yet. They were still a united kingdom until um, Solomon died. So maybe that's why the Lord doesn't say the sin of Israel, like as in the separate nation, but says the sin of the people of Israel, perhaps a subset of people within the united kingdom who are about to break away to form the northern kingdom. So if this was the beginning of the sin of the people of Israel, if this is what, how, how the Lord counts their sin, what was their sin? Was it idolatry, injustice, abuse of power? You know, yeah, certainly we know that to be the case. But that was already the case long before the reign of King David. What was happening? They were, you know, all of this idolatry, injustice and stuff, all of that happened all the time from their history. What was particular about this particular point in their history? The last 10 years of King David's reign. Well, it was probably right around the time of the big rebellion by King David's son, Absalom. It was when the kingdom first began to splinter into pieces. They began to fight internally, brother against brother, son against father. 
This was the time when Absalom tried to wrest the kingdom from David, his father, and the kingdom was never the same after that. And by the end of Solomon's reign, the kingdom officially split into Israel in the north and Judah in the south. And I think, personally, the sin of the people of Israel was rebelling against the king the Lord had anointed over them and the resulting power struggles with each other. Their big sin was fighting amongst themselves, trying to pull power away from each other rather than giving all power and glory to the Lord. Perhaps I am wrong, but this is what the timeline suggests to me. Now, I counted um, backwards from 593 when Ezekiel was first called by the Lord, but there could have been a time lapse between that initial vision and this, this next part of the story. Maybe his vision was sometime after his call in 593, um, but I kind of think the object lesson with the model city and the pretend siege has to happen before Jerusalem falls in 586. Otherwise, it doesn't make sense. So I think the vision has to be sometime between 593 and 586. You know, we're talking a five to seven year wiggle here, but it's not enough to shift the timeline enough to affect our interpretation. But there's lots of opinions. Many scholars think he could have laid on his side 10 years later or more, and they come up with other milestones in Israel's history, such as the building of the temple and say the sin is the continued worship in the high places after the temple was built. But given the context of how the story appears in Ezekiel and the fact that his book is, is written in chronological order, I I think their position is a stretch. So I, I stand by the interpretation I've, I've given you. But as I said, lot, lots of people have lots of opinions. So Ezekiel lays on his side for 390 days. That is the number of years. That's more than a year, by the way. That's the number of years the Lord sees as the years of the sins of the people of Israel. That is the people in the northern kingdom. During this time, he is to eat bread and water precisely measured out and prepared in advance for each day. Now, common sense tells you Ezekiel lays on his side all day every day, but gets up at least once a day to prepare his food and take care of bodily functions. This is intended as an object lesson for the people, not torture for Ezekiel. You can think of this laying on his side, this is like his job for these 390 days. The Lord wants Ezekiel to bake his daily bread over coals made of human excrement as an illustration of how the people of Israel will have to eat unclean food in all the nations where they are exiled. But Ezekiel has an absolute fit over that and refuses to do it. He says, nope, not going to do it, Lord. So the Lord relents and lets him cook his bread over cow dung instead. But even though this whole 390 days is about the sins of the people of Israel, the Lord tells Ezekiel he's doing it because the Lord is about to cut off the food supply to Jerusalem in Judah. The Lord wants Judah to remember what happened to the northern kingdom so it won't happen to them. And even though this is all happening in Babylon, remember, where Ezekiel is living in exile, you can bet that all of his antics are relayed by letter and messenger back to the people in Jerusalem. They know what happened to Israel already. They know that northern exiles are having to eat unclean food. And now they know the same thing is about to happen to them too. To further drive home the point, the Lord tells Ezekiel to lie on his right side for 40 days for the sins of the people of Judah. Again, one day for every year. The Lord gives Ezekiel all these instructions in advance. So while he's been lying on his left side for 390 days, he already knows he's going to have to do exactly the same thing on his right side for 40 days for the sake of Judah's sin. This time, the Lord tells Ezekiel to turn his face toward the siege of Jerusalem, 
I presume this is his clay model, or perhaps he is simply to face towards the real Jerusalem. It's not clear. Ezekiel is to roll up his sleeves and prophesy against Jerusalem. And he's to be tied up with ropes, so he cannot turn to his other side until the end of the 40 days of siege. This is all symbolic stuff that the Lord is having him do. So going back 40 years from 592 takes us to exactly the time when King Josiah of Judah turned 16 and began his radical reforms, throwing out all idols and cleaning up the temple and reinstating the sacrifices and festivals. You'd think that was all good, right? We remember King Josiah as the last good king of Judah. But remember, it was a top down reform. It was Josiah imposing his will on the people. We thought when we studied it back in class 59 and 60 that it sounded like the people's heart was not in it. So it's no surprise that the Lord counts, quote, the sin of the people of Judah, end quote, from that point. They finally had a good leader. They had every opportunity to turn to the Lord wholeheartedly all the encouragement they needed, but they still preferred their idols. The Lord's not done with the warnings yet. He says to Ezekiel, son of man, cut off your hair and your beard with a sharp sword. Then use a scale to divide your hair into thirds. At the end of your 40 days of siege, lying on your right side, burn one third of the hair inside the city. Take another third of your hair and walk all over the city, striking it with a sword. And take the remaining third and scatter it to the wind. All of this is to show how I will pursue the people of Jerusalem with a drawn sword. But the Lord says, Keep a few hairs in your pocket. Take the hairs you keep in your pocket and throw them into the fire and burn them up. That fire will spread from there to all of Israel. You guys are probably in a good position to interpret this part of the dream. Um, it's The interpretation is given a little bit later, but it... To me, it, it says that the remnant, those few hairs saved by the Lord, will be completely purified, refined in the fire, and this holiness will spread through all of Israel. I think this last bit is a message of hope. Of course, the Lord gives Ezekiel the interpretation of these weird object lessons, I mean, after all, the whole point is so the people pay attention and understand exactly what the Lord is saying. They didn't have movies back then. Ezekiel is the movie. There is something visual for these people to not forget. Ezekiel tells the people, the Lord says, I set Jerusalem like a jewel in the center of the nations. But she rebelled against me even more than the pagan nations did. She's worse than they are. Because of your detestable idols, I will do to you what I have never done before and will never do again. The siege of Jerusalem will be so severe that parents will eat their children and children will eat their parents. You have defiled my sanctuary, and so I myself will let you be shamed. One third will die by famine or plague. One third will perish by the sword inside Jerusalem. And one third I will scatter and will still pursue with the sword. So there's a whole much more like this in the early chapters of Ezekiel all the way through chapter seven. But in the middle, the Lord says, nevertheless, among those who escape and are scattered, there are some I will spare. 
they will remember me and will remember how much I have grieved over them and over their idol worship. And they will repent and will despise themselves for what they have done. And these, of course, were the hairs the Lord told Ezekiel to put in his pocket. Then, the Lord says, my anger will cease. Notice how the Lord always, always leaves a remnant. The whole purpose of every single thing the Lord has ever done is to bring us to him. And he's going to do whatever it takes to get our attention. And his eye is on those who are grieved by the wickedness around them. The Lord is trying to communicate exactly how bad things are and how desperate the situation is. Ezekiel is, of course, getting a lot of attention. So the Lord keeps those visions and prophecies coming. The next one happens while the elders of Judah are at Ezekiel's house. They come, they sit on the, the floor at his house and are apparently asking him what the Lord is saying now. The date is September 17th, 592 BCE. Ezekiel writes the date down because the vision he sees is so momentous. I looked and saw what appeared to be a man. He was fiery from the waist down, but from the waist up, he glowed like metal. It was the spirit. And he stretched out his hand and took me by the hair of the head. The spirit lifted me up into the sky and took me back to Jerusalem. And I could see the temple. Oh, oh, and I could see the idol the people had set up. The idol at the north gate that rouses the Lord's jealousy. And there... I saw the glory of God exactly as I had seen it before. And God said, do you see there in the north gate, the detestable things the Israelites are doing? They are driving me from my own sanctuary. And it's not just that horrible idol sitting in the north gate of my temple. There's worse. And he took me to the entrance of the temple court and there was a hole in the wall. And he told me, son of man, dig into that wall. And when I did, there was all sorts of graffiti on the wall of crawling things, unclean things and all sorts of idols. And the elders of Israel were burning incense to them. And God said, see, see what the elders of Israel are doing in secret. They tell themselves, I don't see what they do, that I do not care, that I have left them. Then he took me back to the north entrance of the temple, and I saw women doing a mourning, funeral sort of ritual for a fertility idol that supposedly dies during the summer heat. Do you see this? God said, there's more. And he showed me men in the temple entrance with their backs turned to the temple, bowing down to the sun. God said, this is not some small one-off thing the people of Israel are doing. They fill this land with violence. They do all these things and more. I will not stand for this. Even if they shout in my ears, I will no longer listen to them. Then the Lord called loudly for those who were appointed to execute judgment on Jerusalem. And six men came, each with a deadly weapon in hand. And with them was a man in linen with a writing kit. And they came and stood beside the temple altar. Then the glory of the God of Israel lifted up and moved to the doorway of the temple. And the Lord called to the man with the writing kit, go throughout Jerusalem 
and mark the foreheads of all who grieve over the detestable things that Israel is doing. And he said to the other six, follow him, slaughter everyone else, anyone without my mark on them, beginning here in the temple, go. And they went. And I fell face down and cried, oh, Lord, are you going to destroy us all? And God said, the sin of Israel and Judah is exceedingly great. The land is filled with bloodshed and Jerusalem is full of injustice. I will bring down on their heads what they have done. And at that very moment, the man with the writing kit returned saying, I have done what you commanded me. I have marked the people who are to be spared. That's pretty intense. All of that was in Ezekiel chapter eight and nine. And it is a picture of what is going on spiritually that corresponds to what is about to happen physically. It is like an iceberg, physical and spiritual together are the whole of the iceberg. Um, the, the, the physical part is just that little bit that we see sticking out above the water, but there is a always for the things that are happening physically there, there are spiritual realities. And so we've had a peak here in this, in through these visions of Ezekiel's of what spiritually is going on that corresponds to the terrible events that are about to happen in, in Jerusalem. So pretty much everything in this lesson is uncomfortable, way out of our normal Sunday school, nice church surface comfort zone. So what do we do with all this? So let's talk about that in our breakout groups. So, okay. So those, this is like a hard um, question. Um, Question number one, what do we do with a God like this? Can God be angry and still be good? Can God kill and still be a loving, merciful God? What y'all think? Well, our group kind of went on the, the, that it's not a literal thing. It's more of like God trying to finally get people to listen to him. It kind of like a scared straight program, you know, <laughs> it's like, I've tried everything else. Let's try this. Oh, yeah. no, I don't know. If, uh, it, that's just where we got that. That's he was fine. trying to get the Israelites all to work together and to trust in him. And none of this would happen but they were still in fighting too much for. So he tried something, another way of getting the point across. Any other thoughts? That's great. Well, I have a thought that, um, you know, as, as a parent, we tend to sometimes get very angry and maybe we act in ways that we don't think later on is appropriate. Um, because we're acting out of anger and if God can act out of anger, um, then we don't necessarily have to be so hard on ourselves because um, we're not more perfect than God. So we can, so we can look at God as, as an example of, yes, these things happen, Um, but we can forgive ourselves and move on. Right. Right. You know, a a thought that occurred to me, kind of to follow up on what Renee said, a thought that occurred to me was, okay, this is, this is not, I don't think this is written as a, as a factual history. This is all written as a vision of what Ezekiel saw. So, I don't have a problem with the idea that Ezekiel saw this violent, horrible uh, vision. That doesn't say, in my in my view, that doesn't say that God actually did that. 
Mm-hmm. Interesting. And that kind of feeds into a question that Donna just posted in the chat, which was, you know, is there historic evidence of some of these big things happening, stories or manuscripts or else, you know, or other stuff? And, and certainly, um, like I said earlier, we are like, you know, a week away from, from the actual fall of Jerusalem. The siege of Jerusalem was horrible. Siege was by Nebuchadnezzar folks, <laughs> you know, and, mm-hmm. and it was Nebuchadnezzar who came in and his armies who came in and um, laid the siege and then destroy Jerusalem and destroy the temple. And it's, you know, everything is just leveled. Um, and that happens, you know, not next week, but the next. And, um, and so I think Woody's point is well taken that what we are seeing is a spiritual picture you know, um, that corresponds to these physical events that are happening. Um, the, the, um, let's move to question two and we can, you know, feel free to pull it, plop in any, any thoughts that come to mind. But the second question was, uh, a quote from Ezekiel nine, one out of the NIV that said, then I heard God call out in a loud voice, bring near those who are appointed to execute judgment on the city, each with a weapon in his hand. So my question was, what does it mean when God sends angels or forces or whatever powers, whatever you want to call it to execute judgment? What does that mean? Barb had some really good insights in our group on that. Well, I actually looked up what does execute judgment mean. So the the non-biblical definition, which is basically law, not Jewish law, but law, human law, is that um, taking possession. So like if a sheriff goes out to execute judgment on something, he's taking possession of that because whatever the reason is and which kind of could, this is, you know, I mean, these guys were executing the judgment. Yes, but it's God taking possession, repossessing his people. But then the biblical definition was to perform or inflict, which that's what they were doing. They were inflicting punishment or to carry into effect so they were carrying out what God had promised and um, what God had said that he was going to do, and um, uh, which was to, um, uh, and the guardians were to um, guard against the defilers of the temple. And that was their purpose, the temple and to pretend God. So um, they were carrying out what god had said you know carrying out the uh the punishments i guess you could say that kind of corresponds to something we talked about in our group and that is that is it possible that these punishments roughly correspond uh to what we talked about earlier of of a fire being a fire of refinement not a fire of death so is it possible that uh, executing judgment was a refining mechanism? What do y'all think of that? Mm-hmm. Yeah, one of the things that had occurred to me, um, and this goes a little bit back to the first question as well, because I really struggled with a lot of the violent stuff in this lesson. Um, but there are have been times in history, even more modern history, where some one or some people are so toxic and causing so much harm that in order to protect others, they need to be removed. Mm-hmm. And perhaps that also was part of what was going on here. Sort of like what Woody said, the refining fire is removing the toxicity from the people in order to help them again thrive what do y'all think well it seems to add up that way Mm -hmm. if you're really looking at you know who we know god is 
and some of the stuff just doesn't match up. But when you think of it in the way Woody was, the refinement and trying to get rid of the toxicity, it does. Right. Right. I had, you know, while y'all are in your groups, I'm sitting here working in my own little group in my head, um, writing down things. And, <laughs> and, um, and what I put was that the people are driving the Lord from his own sanctuary, mm-hmm. bringing evil closer and closer and closer to the Holy of Holies. And, and it's not that they're just doing it there. It's that it's evil, basically globally in the nation that this is just the overspill from, you know, it's just, it's just, it's everywhere. The Lord says, and it's creeping in and it's coming in and, and it's, it's almost like you can almost envision God sending out this pulse of holiness is like, no, (laughs) no, this is not how it's going to be. And, um, and I, I thought I was thinking that God's promise to destroy evil, to, to, to do this, to refine, to, to remove the destruct, the evil, that oppresses and the evil that um, creates pain and death and murder and destruction in, in our lives, the promise that God will do something about that is a great promise. Uh, it's, it's, it's a big hope. It's where our hope lies is, is, is that God will do something about this. And it feels like this, what God is doing and what God is saying is going to happen in another two weeks is, is I'm starting. This is the down payment on that. You know, um, I, I, I will stand up and, and this will happen. And I think that it doesn't, I mean, clearly we are living with evil still mm-hmm. and all these prophecies we've read Everything the Lord said leading up to this wasn't, it's going to be all done in 586 BCE. It was, there will come a time, you know, and then we have all these end time prophecies about what will happen when peace comes. Well, you know, going back to the um, parent image that Julie spoke of too, Uh, those of us who have been parents or been in charge of children or whatever and in any way shape or form or somebody and you say okay this is these are the rules and don't don't do this or that or the other this is what will happen or like so say say the punishment is uh, nowadays uh, which I didn't have to deal with this thank goodness uh, I'm going to take away your cell phone I mean that kid is going to feel like you're killing me (laughs) you know so again that's a symbolic type of thing and um and i'm sure that there were there are other you know uh execution of judgments this is my judgment that you you disobeyed you broke the rules and this is what i told you would happen and there's some accountability to this and there are consequences and this is what it is granted wiping them all out seems pretty rough, but I mean, he'd already done that with the Egyptians. So, I mean, you know, with the Passover and all that kind of stuff. So, um, they didn't have cell phones in those days. <laughs> that's true. That's true. You couldn't take away their cell phones. That's right. That's right. <laughs> that's right. I mean, this has yeah. great echoes of the Exodus. This is, I love yes. what you yeah. looked up about, it does. about it does. the meaning of execute judgment. This is God repossessing his people. Yes. Out yes. of the mm-hmm. teeth of death. Yes. Yeah. Because uh, again, going back to the spiritual versus physical thing, he's repossessing them spiritually. Uh, So. um, Which the other word that we use for that is redeeming. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, So I think where I have been struggling with this and I'm getting much more clarity just listening to people talk 
but when you think about, you know, the extremity of the process and what's going on, this, this horrendous siege and famine within the city of Jerusalem, and then the killing of a third of the people and all of that, it seems like a lot of times modern day preachers sort of miss the forest for the trees in these stories and they look at the judgment and and any circumstance that is occurring to a group of people today they say oh these horrible things that are happening to you like the holocaust these horrible things are happening to you because you have sinned and this is god's judgment um you know the aids crisis the you know um it's like they're looking at it backwards, upside down and through the wrong lens. And then that gets spread out amongst Christians that God is still an angry, vengeful, in many ways, hateful God. And non-Christians see that interpretation and say, why would you ever want to follow a God like that? Mm -hmm. Um, And yet, go ahead. I was going to say, and, and so I kind of started slipping into that space as I was reading the lessons this week, the, the verse chapters this week was um, how could God do this? Um, but then listening to all of you talking about redeeming and refining fire and, and those kinds of things that puts a completely different light on the consequences of the choices that Israel has been making for hundreds of years that the people have been making. And, and again, going, I guess, back to that parent image thing. um, I don't know anybody else, but I remember times when I told my child, I'm doing this for your own good, or this is hurting me more than it's hurting you. And, you know, I mean, he was, that's so, I mean, we have, we really don't know what's in the heart and mind of God, except that he loves us and he wants what's best for us. And we have trust that and have faith in that. And so, um, but yeah, it's that, I like the idea of the redemption and the refining and um, that's uh, removing the toxicity. I think that's, that those are great um, analogies and uh, ways to look at it. Well, and it certainly is important to remain grounded always, whether you're operating in the world, responding to, you know, Christians who are talking about the Holocaust or whatever, you know, to, you know, or whether you're reading the Bible, doesn't matter what you're reading or what you're responding to, it's important to remain grounded in who God is. That is the truth. And if it's anything other than overwhelming love and mercy and compassion, we've got it. We've gone wrong somewhere. You know, we're missing something. We're missing a piece of the story. There's more to the story. Um, And um, the Marlene's, your comment about, you know, the horrific things in this lesson. I mean, there's stuff about children being eaten by their parents and, and children being slaughtered, you know, before the age of accountability. And Donna um, sent a note in the chat saying, I read a note about children being basically saved before the age of accountability, which we've talked to here in the class about no such thing as original sin that got invented in 430 or later, you know, it's just a you know, God created us to be with God. That was the whole point there. This whole original sin stuff is not real. Um, And, and that because of that, the thought being that death, this death that they incurred as young children in this Holocaust, right. um, Was saving them from spiritual death, you know, growing up in as idolaters, et cetera, et cetera. You know, I'm, um, she's saying, not that I agree, just a different note that I read. Um, and and uh, I just don't get 
all tangled up in the specifics of how warfare happened in, you know, 600 BCE. That's what, that's what those specifics are, how things happened back then, you know, and horrific things do happen nowadays, but I cling to who God is. And um, when we, I just, I'm just putting the final touches on um, our lesson about Job, which is going to be a piece of fluff compared, compared to this. (laughs) And so to some extent, I want you to hold this thought. Um, And I saved Job out because he, he actually happened way back in the Genesis timeframe but I didn't want to do him with you until we'd had a whole lot bigger and broader understanding of who God is. Um, and so I'm, I'm super excited to get to do that with you. If you've ever studied Job before, um, this will be a very different way to look at Job, as you can imagine. So um, it will be a lot of fun, but um, it speaks to exactly what you're talking about, Marlene. The last question I had, and I don't know if anybody even got to it, was in this story, Jerusalem begins full of wickedness with only a few people who cling to God and grieve over the wickedness. What happens after the judgment is executed? And I, and I like, this is not in the story. I was just asking you to imagine, you know, what if you or one of those little hairs in the pocket and, and um, made it through this Holocaust, what would you be feeling right now? How would you be looking at God? Barb and I did talk about that a little bit before my computer completely froze up and I (laughs) got dropped from the meeting. Um, it seems like, you know, from a, just a natural, personal, human perspective, a tremendous amount of PTSD, mm. survivor's guilt, definitely um, questioning, you know, the questioning the goodness of God, but also being grateful for being spared. Um, tremendous amount of trauma, I would think. Yeah, we came up with that same thing in our group we were talking about you know you would be in fear because of what you had seen and it would be difficult to be joyous and rejoicing at that time especially with the survivor's remorse and then Mm -hmm. when you finally got around to that it might be more like a new year's resolution where you start out strong and it kind of fades with some time that's so interesting because um, either either Renee or Rhonda came up with it, that same idea that that um, you know you, you would have you would be relieved or joyous, but at the same time you would be fearful um, that God had done this, you know, and you would could you really then thereafter trust that this was really a loving God? Yeah, and so there. Oh. Was, go ahead, Julie. You know, I mean, there are times, I mean, I don't know, but I, I would think in, in, in anybody's life when some things happen that just seem beyond the pale and you're just like, how could God allow that to happen? And in this, I mean, it appears that God caused it to happen. He didn't do it himself, but he had his, his angels that took care of all this stuff. And it's just like, okay how can a just and living God allow this to happen to those people or to that person? Um, And how do I, how do I, well, to a certain extent, rationalize that. And as so often I find anyway, with my personal faith, I can't always, I just have to trust. So in the outcome. And I, so I, I I was thinking of um, Germany, World War II, and they had um, tremendous uh, 
people that they had to go through and then they had as a country to reconcile the fact that they um, had harbored monsters and were following monsters. I know that in the at least the two generations after that, people in, in my age um, group uh, born after the war, shortly after the war, um, there, that kind of guilt was instilled into them and then they passed it on to their children, but that seems to be fading now. And um, so there's been a kind of a resurgence of World War II movies and horrible things that happened because I think that's one way to have people co constantly be reminded of the horribleness so that there's, and then I, I, I mean, I've seen pictures of the absolute ruin of these cities, and these people didn't have any other choice but to rebuild their cities. And I would think that there would be a lot of anger on the part of the survivors that they don't get to do what they want to do. They have to clean up this mess. And in the meantime, try and make sure that it never happens again. And perhaps that's the only thing that's left to them, but at the expense of the fact that, well, maybe they can't be the doctor they wanted or the artist that they wanted to be or study music or whatever, that, that they're, they're given only a particular thing they have to do. And I think that that's hard. Mm -hmm. It is. And Donna also said, you know, that especially, you know, clearly in a, a, an event like this would take people you loved and that she would be feeling anger, you know, over that. Um, mm -hmm. And I, I think that everything you all are verbalizing tracks with the biblical record. And... Um, I think that as we, when we, after we do the fall of Jerusalem, we're going to spend a day looking at the prophecies about what happens afterwards, you know, and, and they're, and they're also, you know, spiritual slash physical, just like Ezekiel's today were, you know, um, you have to decide what's literal, what's not, you know, I'm, I, and I'm honestly a lot more interested in what the spiritual reality is than how it actually works out in any particular time. Mm -hmm. But, but um, I want you to hold these thoughts about the trauma and the pain and the anger and the lack of trust. You know, can we trust that God actually is loving and merciful and compassionate because what is happening because we are human we see these people and we don't see evil you know we don't see the magnitude of evil that we don't see the magnitude we don't see with the same eyes that god is seeing what's going on you know and so we make a judgment that well, God shouldn't have destroyed that person, you know? Um, and, um, and this is, so we're wrestling with all this. Do we trust God? Do we not trust God? What's the deal? And then in Job, we get to the other question that runs on a parallel track, which is, but even in our regular, normal human experience, bad things happen to good people. Is God punishing does that mean God is punishing us, you know? Um, so all is balled up together. Um, and, and what it's going to take if I'm a survivor of something like this is healing. <laughs> God is going to have to step up and do some major healing. Um. And so we need to look for that in these prophecies that are coming up. And we need to, we need to look at the story of Job and see what it might have to say to us about why bad things happen to good people. 
you know? So we're to rock bottom, folks. This is the hardest. We thought the Levite's concubine was hard. That was a long time ago. This is like, you know, this is hard, hard emotional stuff that rakes up a lot of feelings inside of us that we repress in order to be good Christians and love God, you know? So I, I think what I'm saying is I'm giving you permission to let those doubts out, to express them, to face them, to let them float during the next few weeks of classes and see if any of it coalesces in a way that can bring healing. And if not, just leave it on the altar with God, because what counts is who God is. Great class, you guys. Thank you very, very much. And uh, remember to uh, open the email either today or Sunday and click the link and send some feedback and all that good stuff. And it's so wonderful to see you again after such a break. Thank you, Gail. Thank you. Bye. Thank you. Have a good week, everybody. Bye. Bye, Bye, Bye. 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 Bye.